John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. As Crystal told the children, this was Jesus' prayer for his disciples that turned into his prayer for you and for me. Hear now God's word. Jesus said, I'm not praying only for them, but for also for those who believe in me because of their word. I pray they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them, and you are in me, so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me, and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Amen. Thank you, Alan and choir. And our guest musician, Paul Campbell, thank, thank you all this morning. Yes. So if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, you know that we've been spending some time thinking about what makes Methodists weird. And I can tell you I had my own personal experience with that this morning. I walked in my office. Uh, I guess this is a function of the garage sale or the sidewalk sale that happened here over the weekend. But what makes Methodists weird is that their pastor walks in the office and finds one of these on his desk. And I don't know if it's because it was the only thing that didn't get bought or if somebody thought it specifically should be mine. It sings. It works. I'm just going to not do that, though. Um, Just put it right back there. But there's some other things that make us weird (laughs) besides getting the singing fish on your desk when you walk in the office on Sunday. And so we've been talking about that. There's those things about Methodism, about Christianity that make us weird. Now, You know, there was a time, I think, in our culture where weird sort of had a negative connotation to it. Uh, Weird was shunned, and social convention was bent toward sameness, cultural homogeneity. But if nothing else, the fact is we live in the most diverse times ever in our country and in our culture, and so we're discovering one another's differences and uniquenesses in a way we never have. And that's all that weird means. All that weird means is unusual, unique, different. So now's the time for Christians, Methodists, to embrace our weird. This is our opportunity to shine, to own those things about us that make us weird. Weird can be okay. Okay? Okay. This summer, in my, in my doctoral cohort, our lead mentor, Lynn Sweet, we, was leading us in a discussion about salvation and just the nature of salvation and what that means practically in our lives and the way that he framed it for us that, uh, biblically speaking, there's a way to understand salvation as being restored to who we were created to be, not just individually but collectively as God's children, as all of the created world and order, being restored to the fullness of who we were made to be. Being made whole. Living life to its fullest. 
which the way Dr. Sweet framed it for us means that for each one of us salvation has a sense in which it means for us to be who God created us to be in all of that fullness and every one of us is created different special unique and yet all in the image of God and so for us to be Christian to follow Jesus is to live into the fullness of who God made us each to be. And we're each and all of us weird in our own ways. And God made us that way. So Jesus came so that we could live life to the fullest and be who we were made to be. So we embrace our weird. And, and what makes Methodists weird, in particular Christianity Yes, but Methodists in particular. We started a couple of weeks ago looking at some of our core beliefs that make us a little bit weird in this world. And the first one is our belief in prevenient grace. That is, we believe that we are recipients of something good that we don't deserve or earn and that God's goodness for us is working on us and in us and around us in ways that we don't even realize. And then last week, we turned to another one of our core beliefs. Pastor Stacy addressed our belief that we can be perfected in love. That we're called by Christ and designed by God to be perfected by God's love. That doesn't mean that we're without mistake or misunderstanding or temptation. But it means that in all ways and everywhere, we are loved and loving. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to a third sort of core belief of Methodism. That's a little bit weird in this world. And that is our polity of unity. It is our belief that the way that we organize and operate as the church in the world hinges on our oneness together. And that there's something important about that for our witness to the world. which we draw directly from that prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden that we just read from John 17. He was praying for his disciples before the night before he was arrested or the night that he was arrested. And as he was praying for his disciples, he then turned his attention to pray for those who would believe because of their words. In other words, he was praying for the people who had not yet believed, maybe had not yet even lived, but would. He was praying for you. And me, that night, Jesus was praying for us. And what was his prayer for us? In a sense, his, amen. In a sense, his dying words, his last conversation with God about us. What did he pray for? 
He prayed that we would be one. He didn't pray for our comfort. He prayed for our unity. He didn't pray for our conformity. He prayed for our unity. He didn't pray for our uniformity. He prayed for our unity. And knowing that we are all created different, unique, special, a little bit weird. In light of that, Jesus' prayer for us was that we would be one. Just as the Father and the Son are one, that we would be one in Him. And in a world that is more focused on what divides us than what unites us, in a culture that chooses sides and rallies the base, it's weird to lift up unity. Being one and seeing all as one is just a little bit weird in a world like this. But every once in a while, we catch a glimpse of it. We, we see an example of this kind of oneness, unity. I saw it a few years ago in a uh, CBS This Morning special, a news report about a basketball team, a high school basketball team in Texas, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. Teamwork on three. One, two, three. Teamwork. If you're a fan of high school basketball, you're not alone. Good boy! But if you're a fan of the Gainesville Tornadoes in Gainesville, Texas, then you are alone. Usually, our fan base was close to zero. My parents came uh, one game, but they didn't come to the other ones because they didn't have time. The other students at Gainesville don't come to the games either, mostly because they can't get out. This is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders. And one of the few perks here, for very good behavior, is a chance to leave the prison a few times a year to play basketball. They play against private schools like Vanguard College Prep in Waco. And it was before that recent matchup that two Vanguard players announced they weren't going to play against a team with no fans. No one likes playing in an empty gym. But isn't that supposed to be a good thing for you? You don't have the other fans cheering against you? I guess, but... It just seems weird, you know, it just didn't seem right. So, before their home game against Gainesville, Hudson Bradley and Ben Martinson asked some of the Vanguard fans for a favor. To cheer for Gainesville instead. The Gainesville players had no idea what was happening. They walked onto the court to find their own signs of support, their own cheerleaders, even their own fan section. Half the crowd was assigned to cheer for Gainesville. But then as it went on, everybody just kind of got so into it. Nobody was cheering for you. (laughs) Everyone was cheering for them. I mean, every time they scored, the gym was just lit up with cheering and clapping, and everyone was on their feet. This is not what I've ever seen sports be. I think in a way, this is kind of 
how sports should be. It, it just kind of showed me the real impact that encouragement and support for anybody can make. Hudson says we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. And for that, the Gainesville players can't thank those boys enough. It's something I won't forget. When I'm old man, I'm just going to be thinking about this. I'll probably remember this for the rest of my life. And finally, as for who won the game, well, obviously they didn't care. So why should we? Yes, I know a video like that maybe brings to mind some bigger issues about privilege or mass incarceration or prison reform. But I hope it also is a glimpse, an example of what unity can be. What it can look like and mean to the lives of the people involved. When there's a couple of basketball players who say to their coach and their fans and their parents and their teammates... If we're not all going to be equal here, if we're not all going to share in the love and encouragement and support that we all desperately need, then I'm not going to play that game. For a couple of high school players that then becomes the team, that then becomes the fan base and the parents in the school to acknowledge we're all playing this game together. That's unity. And I got to confess, as somebody who loves to play sports and play basketball and is competitive by nature, that was weird to me. I had to watch that a couple of times to really make sure I understood what was going on. But hey, If our way of living and being with one another looks weird in a world and in a culture that is competitive, even sometimes combative, a world preoccupied with being in charge and being right, if our way of living and being is a little bit weird in that world, then we might be on the right track. I have a colleague who said recently, sometimes... The most divisive thing of all is unity. And we're not talking about unity for unity's sake. Jesus, even in his prayer, names what unity means. Being one. I mean, I think about the men who've spent the weekend here. Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night. Men of different ages and backgrounds and probably political persuasions and definitely different football teams spent hours and hours here because of one thing, barbecue. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but I'm not. And if you haven't gotten your tickets for the barbecue after worship today, be sure and do that. But yes, slow-cooked pork over indirect heat with the right... Seasoning and spices can unite people, for sure. But Jesus was talking about something yet even bigger, (laughs) something more important. Because he said to God in his prayer for you and for me, Oh God, it is my desire that they would be one, and they would be one in us. 
Because when they are, then the world will know your love. The oneness of the followers of Jesus. He said it a different way when he said how we love each other is the evidence to the world of Jesus' divinity. I've got a note here to let that sink in. So. I'll say it again. The oneness of the followers of Jesus is the evidence to the world of His divinity. Which is why unity is baked into our system as United Methodists. For instance, we're, we organize the church worldwide into conferences where we gather periodically, annually or every four years, depending on how big the gathering. And we pray together, we worship together, we study scripture together, we talk about what's going on in the world and in our communities and what we can do as a church. We make decisions and vote together, discern the will of God for the church together. In Methodism, the way our pastors function is also evidence of our oneness because pastors serve the churches collectively. And churches don't just decide to fire their pastor and hire some other pastor from somewhere else. We, we function corporately to serve the churches as the need can best be met. And we have people like superintendents and bishops who oversee that process and send pastors to the churches so that the churches will know always, even in that, that we're one big church together. Do you know that United Methodist churches don't own their property or their buildings? That, that the land and buildings where United Methodists meet are owned by the denomination and held by the local church. That's just one more way that, that we have, even in the bricks and mortar and dirt under our feet, we've said we are one. And not one in barbecue. <laughs> one in Christ. God knows that's the only way we're going to do this. And be one. And be united. Is in Christ Jesus. I went yesterday to a meeting of the delegation that's been elected from the North Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church to go to the general conference next year to represent us in this worldwide global conference. And I'm one of the delegates. And so we had our first meeting yesterday. And um, we spent five hours down at Emory on a Saturday. I'm fine. Um, <laughs> not bitter. But it was good. And we handled some business. But, but then we had a speaker. His name was uh, Dr. David Hooker. He's a professor of conflict, transformation, and peace building at Notre Dame. And so he was guiding our conversation about some of the things that are going on in the denomination right now uh, that have the potential to divide us. And um, the thing that rises to the top of that list really right now is human sexuality. And he was just guiding the delegation as we talk about that and think about the church and our role as leaders. And he used for an example the Council of Jerusalem where the early church, even at the time of the first disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection, were in disagreement about who's in and who's not. And, and they, for a moment, took different paths. And they said, well, you just go that way and we'll go this way and we'll believe differently. And 
But at the Council of Jerusalem, they, they recognized and realized that what was dividing them was not the most important thing. And so they agreed to come back together and be one church and set aside the, the doctrinal issue that was splitting them. And in talking about that, Dr. Hooker made this statement. He said, they were able to do this because they were not trying to create a shared vision of the future. They were trying to create a vision of a shared future. And that's Jesus' prayer for us, to be one, to have a shared future together. Because our oneness is in Him. When we take our eyes off of Him, when we turn our attention elsewhere, then we start drawing lines and picking sides and dividing up the territory. But when we keep Christ at the center of our lives and our shared life, we can and will be perfectly one in Him. And then Jesus prayed, then the world will know the love of God. For us, for all of us. See, our unity is not in our beliefs. Our unity is in Christ Jesus. So you know what makes Christians weird? In this world today, you know what makes Methodists weird? It's our belief that our oneness is our witness. That the love of God can change the game. Amen. So in just a minute, we'll sing our final hymn this morning. But before we do and as we do, I want to invite you to let that be a time for you to consider your place in the oneness of Christ. Do you have a church, a community of faith where you can be a part of that together? If not, I'd love to offer you Shambly United Methodist Church. I mean, if you're looking for weird, buddy, we, we got it in all the best ways. And we'd love for you to be a part of that and sharing it with us. If there's something in your life, in your heart, in your experience, in your perspective that is a line, that is a barrier, if there's something that you're holding on to or holding up above our unity in Christ, I'd like to ask you, would you be willing to deal with that even this morning? And in all of it, May we know the love of God. Will you stand and we're going to sing hymn number 731. Glorious things of thee are spoken.